So we're here in these first four chapters of, doc, of, of the book of John, the gospel of John, uh, on, on gospel mission with the Godman. And I think of uh, two boys that went to a summer uh, movie showing. And, um, you know, that used to be a thing where some of the, the oldies but goodies would be playing uh, during the summer and kids could find some, a nice, cool place to, to be on a hot day watching a, a few movies uh, for, for not much money. And think of two little boys that went to watch a movie that was a comedy and it was a it was a brother that was that was taller than his 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 little brother and and they got into the place in the theater and the first place that they found to sit and, and the movie was kind of already running the first place that they found to sit it it wasn't exactly good for the little brother uh, he he uh, couldn't see over the person sitting in front of him and um, eventually they would get up and move and find a better spot but you know when you're you're just getting in there, and you just want to get seated down, and and um, you know, and catch up with what's going on. The the brother was tr the older brother was trying to figure out, you know, how do I fix this and stuff uh, for my younger brother. And his first attempt was one where where he said, as his little brother said, I can't see, I can't see what's going on. His first thought was uh, what came out of his mouth. He said, I tell you what, just laugh when I laugh. Obviously, that's not a right answer. You know, obviously, that's not going to be the full experience that that the little one was was looking to have there. And I think about how so often, when it comes to following Christ, we have that mentality that we're just supposed to let someone else experience him, let someone else. Um, Follow him in the way that that in in all the ways that that he is meant to be followed. Let someone else go and and sit at his feet and just tell me when to laugh and just tell me what to do and just tell me who he is. We're given a picture of Christ in the Gospels, not just to be. Um, third-party observers, but we're given who he is to know that that just as we talked about that when we're when we are getting into Christ, it's important for us to know who is this person that we are in Christ when we've received Christ as our Savior. It's important for us to know the significance of that when we are seeking to kick sin out of our lives and anything that distracts us from him out of our lives, it's important for us to know what authority he has to be able to empower us to do that. And when we're trying to keep what is distracting out of our lives, we're only able to do that if we treasure that relationship with him more than that sin that keeps coming and tapping on the window and saying, can't you come out and play? It's only by treasuring what we have in this person of Christ and that relationship with him that we will turn away from what is killing us.
just as, and I keep going back to this, the Lord keeps bringing me back to the parable that the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field that upon discovering it, a man will go and sell everything that he has in order to buy that field. And it's the realization for him that this is more valuable than everything else. And it's in recognizing that that we are willing then to say no to what comes and taps on our window, trying to get back into our life. I share this with you because our passage this morning is fuel for the fight to grow in Christ. We see in it this morning the authority that Christ has. We see in it this morning how Christ is our connection to a relationship with God. A relationship with Christ is a relationship with God. And we see also the futility of our own hearts of being able to find him on our own because when we come to that realization and when we really own that, we have such much, much more of a gratefulness for what we have in Christ. So we're looking at the fact that Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. Those are those four things. But anyway, Jesus is worthy to be, worshipped, uh, to be the treasure we worship. If we don't understand the worth and the authority of Christ, we won't value being in Christ. If we don't experience and treasure our relationship with him, we won't turn away from sin when it desires to move back into our lives. Sometimes it's easy to come to a place where we realize we need to repent. But remember, successful repentance is then a matter of replacing lies with truth and adding to that repetition. And so we discover this morning, we see in Christ why he's worthy to be turned to and turn away from whatever else it is that we're allowing to keep us from him. And, and hopefully we're replacing some of those things, but, but discipleship is a matter then of also being helped in replacing lies with truth and adding to that repetition in that accountability to continue to replace those lies with truth. If we don't realize who it is that we represent, we also will not share him boldly with the world around us. So let's get into our passage this morning. Uh, it's John 2, verses 13 through 25. If you remember, we were left in verse 12 talking about how after Jesus is turning the water to wine, which was his first sign that John shared with us so that we might believe, uh, Jesus and his disciples and his family head back to Capernaum for a few days there. And then it picks up in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus was in Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. First idea that we see from this passage in verses 13 through 17 is that Jesus restores our worship of God. And there's something significant here that we miss, and, and we'll pick up on this. He restores our, us here. And you'll see what I mean. He restores our worship of God, and it's something very important to him. We see that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus and his disciples went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found there those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, all Jewish men who lived within a reasonable distance were expected to come and celebrate the Passover there in Jerusalem. Jesus, his family, and his disciples would have been expected um, to be there since Capernaum was within a reasonable walking distance. There, This was the first of three Passovers that are mentioned in the book of John. The last of those Passovers, if you're aware of, is what Jesus celebrates on the night before his crucifixion. So there would have been, this would have been the first Passover, and over his three years of ministry, there would have been four Passovers involved in those three years, uh, beginning with Passover and ending with a Passover. And But John chooses to focus on three of those Passovers. John chooses to center in in these 12 chapters, on ceremonial and festival events like this, with so many of those chapters, again, it reminds us of John's audience of being uh, mainly to Jews that needed to see how significant Jesus was to the Jewish people as their Messiah. So we see first here the refusal of the Jewish leaders. I want to mention here that when it says in the temple he found, the term here used for temple is different than, than in the original language than the other terms in this passage that will be used for. Okay, The term here used for temple is that which points to all the temple grounds with its courts and its porticos. I have a picture here which will point to what I'm talking about. So whereas later you'll see that that Jesus is talking about the temple main structure here made up of the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies. When, he, when it says that he entered into the temple, it's using a term that refers to all of the temple 
area that he comes in there and observes what he sees here. It says, as you saw, that he, he saw people selling oxen and sheep and, and pigeons, <clears throat> as well as money changers. The work of these people was actually an important service for the pilgrims that made their way there for a festival like the Passover. Because they, whereas the Passover involved the Passover lamb and celebrating that way, they would have also come to to pray and to to offer sacrifices and things like that. It would have been a regular come, you know. I guess they would have been, you know, kind of like running errands and and um, killing two birds with one stone. No, no pun on the pigeons. <clears throat> but um, so rather than having to lug their animals from home all this way, they were able to buy them then near the temple. It was an important service that was being provided for them, actually. And the worshippers also needed to pay the temple tax. And the coin of the Tyrian would have been what would have been accepted at this time at the temple. So this needed service had been provided for years, but it typically would have been across the Kidron Valley uh, leading up to the Mount of Olives. So at a time like this, um, in previous years, and I don't know if this was like a all of a sudden it happened that it was there in the courts or not, or if it kind of migrated that way. But, but typically, across the Kidron Valley, up the hillside of the Mount of Olives, during a festival like this, it, it would have been like kind of uh, this, this area of merchants and money changers would have been set up in that area. But as we know, the most three important things for selling something is location, Location, location. And you can imagine as how these merchants kind of competed slowly maybe over time or, or maybe somebody just got it in their head this year. I don't know. It was like, oh, you know, Jabesh is setting up right there. He's going to get, we better set up right next to him. You know, kind of moved over competing for each other, I guess. But anyways, I digress. Jesus would clear the temple area again, actually, later at the end of his ministry, at the beginning of the week that leads up to his crucifixion. And these are, these are recorded in the other three Gospels, but this earlier one is the only one recorded here in the Gospel of John. At that time, he refers to the fact that the merchants are turning the temple into a den of robbers, he says. But I believe that Jesus is brought to action here at the beginning of his ministry for another reason, and the reason maybe why this clearing of the temple is inserted into the Gospel of John, whereas it's not in the others. And You see, the temple was intended to be a place of worship, not just for the Jews, but also for God-fearing Gentiles. Solomon, in the building of the, his temple to God, he prayed um, that God would welcome the worship of Gentiles at his temple dedication. When I mentioned Solomon's temple, that would have been the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. This here for in Jesus' time is a temple that had been built after that period um, under the reign of Herod. But Solomon and Solomon at the dedication of the original temple, he says he prays this as a part of the dedication. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake 
for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes to pray toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that you may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. As well, God spoke about his temple through the prophet Isaiah. I'm sorry. I don't have this quote, but I'll read it for you. It says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, this is referring to, and this is in Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, speaking of the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, so this would be non-Jews, Gentiles, that would be us, who are God-fearing and desire to worship him. It says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. So one thing we don't necessarily realize is that the temple was meant to be a place not just for Jews to worship the Lord, but also for Gentiles. The location that this market of merchants and money changers would have been in would have been this court of the Gentiles. Or if you see, you probably can't read that up here, this picture lists it as the Gentiles' courtyard. So all of this area here was known as the Gentiles' courtyard. This is the closest that non-Jewish God-fearers would have permitted, been permitted to get to the temple. This area would have been their place to pray. And when Jesus came, their worship of God was being disrupted by God's people, the Jews, who were trying to make a buck. The Jews' refusal was that they weren't allowing Gentiles to worship and pray in peace. They weren't attached any longer to God's desire that all people would have access to him through this place. You know, can you imagine it? A Gentile would be standing there trying to worship and somebody bumps into him and be like, Hey, move out of the way, would you? Oi, vey, I need to put my table here. No, sorry about the accent. But um, a commentator that I appreciate, he's got a great name, his name's Andreas Kostenberger, says, by selling sacrificial animals and setting up their currency exchange in the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple, the merchants, in effect, torpedoed Gentile worship in the only place where it was possible. And this is what flew in the face of God's and Jesus' desire for the temple to be a place of worship, not just for Israel, but for people from all nations. So when I say that Jesus restores our worship, I'm talking about us Gentiles. 
He brought God's purpose of reaching the world with his truth and love back into focus. He did it with passion. He wasn't just doing it to make a statement. This was not just performance art. Jesus was moved into action. And that's why we see the response of Jesus in verses 15 through 16. Jesus was driving away anyone who was getting in the way of the Father being worshipped. Now, as a side note here, Jesus doesn't seem very nice here. Okay? And there's a reason for that. He wasn't being nice. You know what the definition of meekness is? Strength under control. A horse with its rippling muscles and a hoof that could kill a man is considered meek. It has strength under control. We're not called to be nice when we follow Jesus. There are many times when following Jesus means being unpleasing, disagreeable, and less than delightful. Well, the definition of nice is to be pleasing, agreeable, and delightful. We're not called to be nice. It shouldn't be our goal to come across as nice. But it shouldn't be our goal to be in the consistently not nice either. I mean, it's not like we should try to be disagreeable. And we shouldn't try to be intentionally unpleasing to people. But we're not necessarily called to be nice all the time. Incidentally, I don't know if you noticed, but um, Jesus doesn't use the whip on people. He uses them on the sheep and the oxen. And the people follow their livestock out of the area. You know, um, for instance, you can see this, that if he, were, if he were striking people with the whip, he wouldn't approach the people with the sheep and the oxen differently than he approached the people that had the birds. Okay? He would have just, it would have just said he drove them out too. Okay, actually, he tells the people selling the pigeons or doves, take them away, right? So he doesn't come in and let loose the people's property. You know, notice the strength under control. Um, what we see here is passion under zeal. It's what we would understand as being angry yet without sin. So that's Jesus' response to this situation. We also see the remembrance of his disciples. Now in contrast with the lack of concern for God's use of the temple, the disciples look back on this event with 2020 vision. 2020 hindsight. I, when I say they look back, there's nothing in this verb for, and the disciples remembered, that says, and they remembered at that moment. In fact, later on it says, and we remembered later. The Jewish leaders had allowed the temple to lose its outreaching purpose, but the disciples looked back on the event 
and realize its significance. And they look back on it from the perspective of Psalm 69, verse 9, that John quotes here. And they saw this action as fulfilling this prophecy. But there's more than this, than just what John quotes. And I believe it's implied. John 69, verse 9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This psalm prophesies Jesus' actions, and it also predicts his redemptive work of taking our sins upon himself as our atoning sacrifice. But I want you to see here, the Jews, forgetting their purpose of being a light to the world, gives more significance to other words of Jesus that we find in Matthew 5, where he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill, it cannot be hidden. In other words, it's not meant to be hidden. That's why it's on a hill. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand. And they light it because it's going to give light to the whole house. The Jewish people had missed that they were to be a light to the world. And with their mercantile, they were hindering the very people that they were supposed to be reaching. You know, we too have been given the job of being a light to the world. And we've also been given a different approach, though. But let me say first, with our approach, we need to make sure, as being a light to the world, that we don't put anything between someone and the gospel that God doesn't put there. And the one thing that he puts there is them realizing that they need it. We shouldn't put how they dress or what kind of marks they have on their skin or what color of skin they have. If we put that issue between someone and them hearing the gospel or being loved out of the gospel, then we're acting like these people who are keeping the ones that they were there to serve with the truth. We're acting like them and keeping them from coming to the truth. We've been given a different approach. You know, the temple was a, had a purpose of welcoming those who sought to worship the Lord and bring them to Him. The body of Christ is also meant to be making an impact on the world, resulting in people worshiping God. But our method is to be different. We're not called to say, come, we're called to go. Sorry. We're called to go. As we read in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are called to recognize his authority, incorporate his authority into our lives, and out of that authority, take his message to others 
and experience his presence in the process. Don't get me wrong when I say this. I, I would encourage you to invite your neighbor to church. But I cringe a little bit when we talk about someone who doesn't know Christ and we say, I'm hoping to get them into church. They don't need church. They need the gospel. And they need to hear it from you. They need to see it in you. You need the gospel to grow in it to a place where you're comfortable with it, that you're comfortable with it. The gospel is your skin for a follower of Christ. And it's about becoming comfortable in your skin, if you will. You know, this is part of the reason why uh, we're having all the small groups this fall are going to be doing this simple little book, What is the Gospel? Because we need to be reminded of it again and again and again. We need to see the significance of it. And out of that, we overflow with it. And I, and I, and I encourage you to be a part of that. That's all I'll say about it. This moves us into um, the second aspect here, that Jesus actually replaces the temple of God. We see, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Now the Jewish rulers asked Jesus to show them his authority in the form of a miraculous work. It would have been the way a person would show himself to be doing God's work or to be speaking for God. In Jesus' case, it would be in defense of the actions that he's taken in driving people out of the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus' response here about destroying the temple, and I will raise it up in three days. From this point forward, as I said, in this passage, the term for temple here is referring to the main building containing the sanctuary and the holy of holies. And, there, and, and the discussion that goes on here, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Now by A.D. 30 of this time, Herod's remodeling of the temple would have been completed for 46 years by this time. And I believe the better rendering of this statement is this structure has been around for 46 years and you want us to tear it down just so you can try to build it back up in three days? Gives us maybe a better understanding of what's going on when we hear this response of the Jewish leaders here. Asking, what sign do you show us for doing these things? There's so much significance to what the Jews should have seen in Jesus' action. As we see again and again, they're hung up on something and miss the message that he's bringing. Malachi wrote of the day when the Lord would come suddenly into his temple and take the worshipers there by surprise. Zechariah spoke of a coming day when all men and women would have a special role in worship. 
even describing that their own utensils would be just fine for that worship. Zechariah writes in, in 14 verse 21, And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And notice this. And there shall no, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Fact is, is the messianic kingdom that the Jews should have been looking toward included a new temple, including a new a new vibrancy to the temple worship. The Jewish leaders were missing the fact that what Jesus already did was a sign in itself. The Messiah was presenting himself to his own people. And as we read about in John 1 verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. And that's what we're observing here. We'll talk more later here about man-centered versus God-centered responses to him, or theology. But for now, let me ask, when God upsets your pigeon cart, all right? When he drives away, what is keeping you from focusing on him? How do we respond? Well, typically it takes us a while to realize what he's doing. But it helps to know and to believe and cling to the fact that everything that is going on in your life is being allowed by him and his biggest purpose is to bring glory to himself and to make you more fit for worshiping him. If you start from there, you're more likely to realize that he's removing what's gotten between you and him when he upsets your pigeon cart. When he tries to get you to look outside of your world to those in need around you, are you willing to listen? We see a contrast in the disciples' belief here between the, the, the response of the Jews and the, and the disciples' belief here. John writes that he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, he says, his disciples remembered, John included, that he said this, and they believed the scripture that the word and the word that Jesus had spoken. The disciples saw God's bigger purpose in all this. They didn't see it at that moment, if you'll notice. We'll talk a moment in here about the fact that they needed to look back on this moment with different eyes. The term here that John uses for when it says that he's speaking about his body is the Greek term soma. And John doesn't use this again until the point where he describes Jesus' dead body being taken off of the cross. Being torn down, if you will, to be raised up again in three days. What the disciples later realized was that Jesus was talking about raising the temple 
of his body in three days. The place which held God's glory for centuries was going to be replaced by him who carried the glory of God. Which John said, we beheld God's glory. The place where the world was expected to come and commune with God was replaced by the one and only mediator between God and man, First Timothy tells us. Imagine the thoughts that ran through the minds of the Jews who were reading about this account from John's Gospel. Their temple was destroyed. They had heard rumors and testimonies that Jesus had risen from the dead after three days. Imagine how they felt when they read this and realized their temple still lives. And in receiving him, believing the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, they could come boldly before the throne of grace themselves, wherever they were. We don't come to know God through some special place or through any person but through Jesus Christ. He is our access, as was the temple for the Jewish people. Rather than coming to God through a sacrifice like the Passover lamb, we come through the shed blood of Jesus. Rather than having to return again and again to return to be atoned for each year. His sacrifice is eternal and complete, as Hebrews tells us. So, I need to correct what I said before, that your friend doesn't need the church. He or she does. Because just as Jesus became the new temple, the church is called his body. And guess who is the church? It's not this place. We are. Your friend does need the church. They do need the body of Christ. They need it through you. Yeah, I'm going to give you one simple, easy step in that. Okay? Just in the course of conversation with your coworker, with your neighbor, with your friend at school, you can just let it be known that you are who you are because you follow Christ and because he's changing you. If you can let that be known, your life becomes a testimony. I'm not saying let it stop there, but that can just be step number one. Because you are who you are because you follow Christ. Not perfect, but forgiven. Easy step. We see here finally that Jesus recognizes the heart for God says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in it. Let me just make note there, verse 24, it doesn't say he knew these people. It says he knew all people. And he knows what is in man. So he's lumping all of us, all of mankind, into the same category here. Jesus went on to do other signs over the course of his time there in Jerusalem. In general, people were excited about what he was doing. People other than the Jewish leaders. But Jesus was not at all interested in allowing them to promote him 
as a great teacher or a miracle worker. There's a play on words here in going through this statement. And that, that's that when it says the same word here used in the Greek for the fact that they believed in his name is the same as when it says, but Jesus didn't believe in them. We're going to see in the next few weeks just what it means that Jesus didn't trust people's belief. John kind of steps off. This is kind of a transitional couple verses. We'll refer back to it next week. Jesus is going to talk to a man named Nicodemus and challenge him that before they can even get anywhere, Nicodemus is going to have to be born again. Why? Because Jesus knows what's in man. He'll talk to a woman at the well and challenge her. Before she can do anything, she is going to need to repent. Because Jesus knows what is in man. But both of those people believe in Jesus as being something special. But Jesus knows that he is so much more than what they are giving him credit for at that time. We'll sadly see whole crowds of people turn away from following Christ because of some hard things that he says. And his distrust of people's faith here is just a foreshadowing of the change that needs to happen in them. And they say the hardest distance for anything to travel is the distance that truth has to travel from the, I'm sorry, from the brain to the heart. From the head to the heart. That that's the hardest distance that anything has to travel. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. Our third point is sort of misleading here. The fact is, just as the, these verses state, Jesus knows the heart for God. He knows, he recognizes the heart for God. But if man is left to his own devices, Jesus will not find a heart for God in anyone. As I mentioned, he, he knows all people, including his disciples. It's not that they were brilliant or more insightful. In a moment, I'll show you that even his disciples, as it says, weren't getting the significance of this moment. But Romans 3 does a really good job of stringing together several Old Testament passages and tells us none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And as verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is why, parents, when you're encouraging your children in what to look for in a mate, if it's not someone who is born again, this is who they get to hang out with for the rest of their life. Bottom line. Nice person or not. But this is who we are until Christ breaks in and makes us something new. But people were responding to Jesus, weren't they? We tend to think, isn't that all that matters? That a person's just kind of making some movement toward God? You know, as if all of a sudden God shouts, Yes! 
I was worried that no one would believe in me anymore. That's not what we see here. Jesus recognizes a heart for God, but what we have originally is a man-centered heart when we are left to our own sinful bent. And that's what he sees. That's what he points out. And Jesus doesn't want anything to do with it. By man-centered, I mean that people, people are all about God as long as it seems like God is meeting their earthly needs. I mean meeting them as they see fit. We'll see in chapter 6 where a whole crowd of people is saying, Hey, Jesus, I hear you can make bread out of thin air. Now's a great time to do a sign. We're hungry. And can you make it a nice marble rye? But then we'll see him upset their pigeon cart and start talking about, how about it's about eating my flesh? And the crowd thins out really fast. You see that in chapter 6. We as a church can make the mistake of seeking to, to meet the needs of people that they think are the most important we can end up neglecting the eternal needs that are most important. Today, people, they, they feel like they need to seek after God in whatever, whatever form they think of Him. But the reality is, is that He's a real person with a real personality. And like anyone else, He doesn't like to be mischaracterized. In our day and age, a person feels that they need to have their choices affirmed. What they need first is the offensive message of the gospel that they are a sinner in need of redemption. A man-centered heart is interested in a cosmic butler with the power of Superman and the personality of Santa. Through observing Jesus, we see that God has no interest in this job description. We also see here a God-centered heart illuminated by the Holy Spirit. When John says about himself and the other disciples, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. As I mentioned, it's more important. It's important for us to see that the disciples didn't have some sort of superior ability to believe in Jesus. They weren't exercising, you know, a superior intellect or a stronger faith or something like that. We'll see again in the Gospel how John, how the light did come on in their minds were illuminated. He'll refer back in John twelve sixteen where he says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and been done about and had been done to him. The fact is that it was the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, that allowed the disciples to fully see Jesus as he was, even though they were walking right next to him for three years. And if you read in John chapter 6, Jesus will say that one of them, because of without the work of the Holy Spirit, didn't even see him ever. So I'm saying to you that John is writing about the disciples' understanding of Jesus' words after the Holy Spirit had permanently indwelled them and opened their eyes. And that's where a man-centered view of God can only come from. I'm sorry, a God-centered 
view of God can only come from. Now, there's a humorous explanation for the difference between man-centered and God-centered theology. And let me close with this. And then we're going to open up for that, this opportunity for men to share. This humorous explanation of the difference between man-centered and God-centered is called cat and dog theology. Now, I know that I'm characterizing, I'm stereotyping your pets here. Um, some of you cat lovers might take offense at this, and I'm sorry if that's the case. But I'm just going to share with you some, some ideas, and you can learn more about this at catanddogtheology.com. There's your advertisement. Um, it says, a dog might look at you and think, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. On the other hand, a cat will look at you and say, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you love me. I must be God. It's the cat owners that are laughing the loudest here. They both look at the same information, but because they're either self-centered or master-centered, they come to totally different conclusions. It says, it's been said that e ancient Egyptians once worshipped cats as gods, and cats have never forgotten that. In a similar way, many Christians look at all that God has done for them, and while they say he is master, they treat him like he's a member of their staff. That's why maybe, for instance, they use prayer to tell God what they want, when they want it, and how they want it. And if he doesn't do accordingly, they get ticked. They think life is all about them. And they want to use God to make them happy. Jesus is saying, I'm not about that here. And John is saying, we didn't see it until God opened our eyes. We see our passage that Jesus um, sees this in our hearts. And I'm so glad he changed hearts. And that's the first thing he has to do in our lives. Plain and simple. We just close in prayer and then we'll, we'll have a, a mic brought up here. And uh, any men would like to share just some of the things that, that they picked up from the conference uh, this weekend. That'd be great.